Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Donald Trump is retruthing videos of George Soros being killed. We have a great show for you today, Democratic pollster and Biden White House insider John Delavolpe will talk to us about why Gen Z is more political than past generations, and then we'll talk to CNN's Joan Biscubic about her new book, Nine Black Robes, and her explosive reporting on the Supreme Court. But first we have legendary Democratic strategist, James Carville. Welcome back to Fast Politics, fan favorite, James Carville. You know, thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah. And now we need to talk about the libraries. I mean, you texted me this. And it's just such an incredible story. So talk to me about this, what's happening in Texas with libraries. Well, the war on books, and uh, they describe in, in Lano, Texas, one wrote it would be better to close the library and put porn back in the kids section. Among the books her group deems porn, Larry the Farting Leprechaun, my butt is so noisy, and my favorite, Gary the goose and his gas on the loose. <laughs> when they came after gay people, I didn't say anything because, well, I'm not gay. And then they came after black people, and I didn't say anything because I'm not black. Now they covered out people who fought. Well, it's time for me to speak up. <laughs> <laughs> you have lived through so many campaigns, and you've worked on them. It seems like Republicans are heading into a ditch. It kind of does. And I don't know how they pull out of it. I mean, think of this. So Tim Scott, 
announces his exploratory committee. Of course, he does what you're not supposed to do. He says he's running, <laughs> and he doesn't right. have my answer on abortion. Well, that's the only question people are going to ask you. Ron DeSantis is running for president. He doesn't have an answer on Ukraine. Of course, you got this insane book banning. I mean, we can't tell the children that there are gay people out there or black people. What are they going to do when they find, you know, they can't find that out. It's insane on a level that you can't believe. And then, of course, this judge, these pills, they don't seem to want to get better. They really don't. I don't understand politics where you get a 27% issue and you ride it as hard as you can. So here's a so here's a question for you. So we have book banning. We have all of these radical anti-trans, anti-gay, anti-education bans going up in these red states. We're seeing just a ton of this real crazy kind of, you know, trying to please the base. So is the game here just the Electoral College is so crazy that you can win even if you don't win? I mean, is that what these Republicans are thinking or are they just out of control? Well, first of all, I think they live in a bubble. All right. So all they care about are their base and the base outlets. And, you know, remember in 2020, they came within, I don't know what, 45,000 votes. If they turn the vote around and take the total that we won Georgia, Arizona, Nevada and Wisconsin by, and it's, it's not a lot of votes. And, you know, a lot of people are saying we're going to have a recession coming up. Well, the hell, I might be in striking distance. They might win a damn thing. Understand that we didn't have any turnout to speak of in 2020. I mean, that's a lot to be worried about here. Right. It's just a fiasco. Talk to me about what you see Democrats doing that's during this period, which I think is kind of a, interesting. One of the, the things they did is they won a big election in Wisconsin. And, you know, you got to hats off to Ben Wickler and the job that they did there. And, you know, they're outperforming in Virginia and in every election held since the 2022 election. I think Democrats have outperformed substantially. You know, we got to build on that. The, the biggest problem that we have in my mind is we've just had an abysmally low black turnout in 2022. Right. And, Unless we figure out a way to address that, we're not going to be able to win these kinds of races. I really have a, a pay attention tag on the Mississippi governor's race because that's a 2023 election. And if so let's talk about that. Yes. All right. So if there's any spillover from this insanity in Tennessee, you might see it in black turnout in Mississippi this fall. So do you feel like this stuff that happens in Tennessee, does it suppress black turnout? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, I'm hoping I'm hoping it stimulates it. Interesting. People see that. And, and the guy from Tennessee, Justin Jones. Yeah. He and the guy from Memphis, Justin Pearson, are quite smart people. And that speaker looks like he's somebody got held back a year when he was in school. And not the <laughs> sharpest knife in the draw. No, it's not. <laughs> You know, maybe Justin Jones is in divinity in a master's program in divinity at Vanderbilt. I'm, I'm hoping maybe he can do some kind of black churches in the Mississippi Delta. I think he'd be quite a hit. And, you know, he's kind of young. I mean, that was pretty cool. Him and Joan Bias singing We Shall Overcome. In the airport. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't make you feel good. I don't know what <laughs> can't. Can. But, I mean, the hopefully this will stimulate people to come out and vote. I mean, we. We certainly got to put the, the stimulant right there and hopefully they take it. But it's a race we can win. Mississippi? Yes. Okay, you've just blown my mind, James Carville. The Democratic floor in Mississippi is like 47 and a half. 
Right. And the black share is about 38 and a half, and we're lucky if we ever get above 30. If we got the black share up to 35, we'd win easy. Plus, they have an incumbent governor who is particularly corrupt and particularly stupid. He, he literally has the single most slappable face I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and we have a, a great candidate, Brandon Presley. He's from Tupelo. Yes, he's part of that family, distantly related. You got to be more specific here. He's related to the king. Yes. Okay, go on. And he's from the same town, that same county the king is from. Okay. His headquarters in Tupelo. And he's elected to the Mississippi Public Service Commission from North Mississippi. So he's actually the highest ranking elected Democrat in Mississippi. And he's a quite good candidate. I'm just going to spend a lot of time on this. They're so corrupt down there. If people hadn't caught on, they think Louisiana is like more corrupt than it's not. Louisiana is not close to Mississippi when it comes to corruption. Not, nowhere near. And it's all Republican dominated. So can you say a little more about how you think that voters might elect a Democrat in Mississippi? I mean, just because of his message or? The corruption stories, people have figured out there's a bucket load of corruption in Jackson. Can you be a little more specific about what that looks like? Diverting $5 million in money that's supposed to go to feed people, building a volleyball arena for Brett Paul's daughter. Right. Okay. I remember this story. Yes. 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 Mississippi has a 7.5% sales tax on food. Okay. And they want to eliminate the state income tax to charge poor people, of course, the highest percentage of poor people in the country. Well, sales tax on food kills poor people. Right, of course. It doesn't kill them, it slaughters them. Right. And that money is going to Brett Favre's volleyball arena. Right. It goes on and on. The state auditor is elected. Is a actually a Republican. He's a very credentialed guy. So this guy's running against Tate Reeves. Yeah. He's running against Tater. He's about as smart as a Tater. <laughs> <laughs> the polls are 46-46. Wow. I mean, you know, if we can put the thing in and we can get that black turnout, we can do a lot better. And by the way, rural hospitals are closing in Mississippi just left and right. It's right. The, you can't imagine. And of course, just out of cruelty, they won't expand Medicaid. Well, Brandon will get in there. He'll almost force them to do it. Right. I mean, because that does fall to governors, right? Yeah. I mean, the legislation, but the governor has... All the power. You see, the, even the right-wing North Carolina legislature decided they were going to expand Medicaid. You think about it, even if you live in a rural county, maybe you have health insurance, but if you don't have a hospital, it's not going to be any good. And that's getting worse and worse. Every day. They're closing them left and right. You do this one election, you, you would probably help more people than you could imagine. You'd probably be a half million people would get health care. You would stop a horrific increase of a 7% sales tax on food. I, I think Brandon would like to get rid of it totally. You know how much that would save, a, would that mean to say a family of making $22,000 a year, which their bucket load of a Mississippi, she's has a lot of money. Yeah, that's so interesting. So that's a great example. We've seen some real surprises for governor's races, starting with Kansas, North Carolina, you know, states that we think of as very red states, but because, you know, these governors have done such crazy stuff, they've ended up electing Democrats. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's catching up with them nationally. You know, I, I love Trump out there saying that the Republicans have gone to 
to fold abortion. Well, four <laughs> appointed judges, like three of them. But he, you know, he doesn't take responsibility for anything. Right. No, it's never his fault. Right. Nope. We could we could do well in twenty twenty four. You know, no, but you you look at you look at striking distance. Two thirds of the country doesn't want Biden to run for reelection. I mean. We're just doing things in this country, you know, two-thirds of people in this country don't want to outlaw abortion pills. I mean, at some level in politics, you got to start giving the public what it wants. Basically, what the public wants are a lot of the same things that you and I would want. So what do you think about that crazy polling number? I think people feel like Biden is too old. Right. It, it's an issue that's not going to go away. They're not going to, like, change. You, 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 you know, you sometimes people think you're too liberal. Well, you can sort of tack a little bit to the senator. You're too conservative. You can you can fiddle with ideology. You know, you can make adjustments. You can't adjust your age. And so if he does it, obviously, I'll beat my bum up to think he's done a good job. But the question is not going to go away. I do think that running against Trump, it's not as much of an issue. I mean, if he's running against someone like Ron DeSantis, okay. People have to choose, all right? We don't even know if Trump's going to be. Several people that have seen him said he just looks awful and he's really fat. <laughs> you don't even know if he don't throw the number here in the next you know, year and a half. I think he's going to run. People have said, which I've long said, the Mar-a-Lago case, there's not a non-laughable defense for him in that. I think that's going to be his downfall of documents. Obviously, the documents case, you know, and we're hearing more and more that Jack Smith has this plan and that plan, and he's, you know, interviewing people. But ultimately, it doesn't necessarily matter, right? I mean, I think the base doesn't care about Jack Smith. The base is 40%. You can't win with 40%. Right. No, no, you can't win, but you can win a primary. It could. That's a, it, That's their huge problem. But it's not our problem. No. You know, he's got now a new ad with pudding fingers. <laughs> That's an amazing ad. Oh, I mean, they're just brutal. The Sanders don't know what he stepped into. You know, I've told you before this program that Susie Wiles is like, she's vicious. Oh, yeah. And they hate DeSantis and they hate the wife. And the Democrats, we said, so we just, well, you know, if we'll get Trump, we'll probably beat him. You probably will. But, you know, in a recession, are you sure? Right. The stakes are much higher if you're running against Trump, too. High. It's not even... The word for it. Right. I do think that DeSantis is actually much scarier than Trump because DeSantis is is good at doing this. He's good at stunts. Right. All right. His whole answer on Ukraine was, was really amateur stuff. And Trump has just pummeled him. And he doesn't know how to fight back. I mean, they're bringing Jeff Rowe in. You know, they're trying to figure it out. But he's good at bathrooms. Right. You know, he talks about his record. You know, Crime rate in Florida is higher than crime rate in California, New York. And, it, you know, he's, he's had a, you know, he because he did sort of well against Trump at the beginning and everybody got enamored with him. I don't see any evidence that he can hit big league pitching or that he can play <laughs> on this field. I just don't. What about that 2024 Senate map? To keep the Senate, we need 53 plus percent of the popular vote, which is exceedingly difficult to do. It had been done. But also, I mean, like Joe Manchin, I mean, do you think he even runs as a Democrat? I mean... Honestly, when I look at the Poland in West Virginia, I, he might not even be able to win if he runs as a Democrat. I mean, the thing about West Virginia is their governor used to be a Democrat. I mean, he could just run as an independent. I think he and Manchin are, are friendly to the two wealthiest people in the state. Yeah. I mean, Manchin in 2018, they said they'd do anything to get him to switch. He told me he didn't switch. He didn't want to switch because it may be, if he wants to stay in the Senate, 
the only way he can do it is he switches. Or he runs as an independent. Oh, yeah, maybe he could as running as an independent. But speaking of running as an independent and being horrible, Kirsten Cinema. No, she's done. You can stick a fork in her. She's done. You don't think no labels can get the money for her and run her as a third party? Well, the thing about no labels is I don't know how much money is left after everybody gets that cut. <laughs> third way is fine organization. Of, I like to, any of that. This is just sheer evil. This is what this is. This could, the only thing that they can do is throw the election to Trump. That's it. Yeah. Somebody's got to make money to help get Trump elected. I, I am so not a fan of no labels. You can't believe it. Well, they're basically just a Republican super PAC, right? They get some donors that I know. And it's, like, it's one of these things that it sounds attractive. It, it's not, there's nothing that can, good that can come out of it. I'm sure that the Russians and the Koch brothers and <laughs> the whole thing is figuring out a way that they can be part of this giant effort to ruin the country. It sounds good. No, no labels. Yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> but um, but Sherrod Brown, John Tester, you're not so worried about that. Angus King. I'm worried sick about testing Sherrod Brown. Really? Yeah. I mean, we ought to have a rough them, soft them general election. And then, and, you know, we have to worry a little bit about Bobby Casey in Pennsylvania. You know, we, we got to keep that Nevada seat, which we won by 7,000 votes last time. We got to keep the Arizona seat. The place we might have a chance, honestly, is is Texas. Who is going to run for that seat? If Colin Alred runs, I like him. He's a close friend, great guy, got a great life story. And you know, Ted Cruz, he, he's not that popular, and he's trying to figure out a, a way around this. And Texas is changing, and I think it would be wrong to give up on Texas. By the way, it's the best chance we have for a pickup in the whole country. In Mississippi, if we had somebody run against Cindy Hyde Smith, what is she done? And one, box of rocks, two, a second, a pain. Yeah. You know, three, a square yard of concrete. I don't know. Take your pick. <laughs> James Carville, I hope you'll come back. Always, Molly. Love you so much. Thank I sleep better at night knowing my family is protected if something ever happens to me since I was able to compare plans very easily at policygenius.com. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quote and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, 
Delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style, the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com news and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com news. Identity theft protection starts here. John DeLavope is a Democratic pollster and the author of Fight, How Gen Z is channeling their fear and passion to save America. Welcome to Fast Politics, John. I love it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you are a famous celebrity, largely famous for your incredible polling, which has gotten you to the White House. But let's first start. You sort of become an expert on this generation that is coming up. And what do we call them? Well, we were calling the current generation Gen Z. You know, Molly, I've been at this with students at the Institute of Politics now for, I don't know, a couple of decades. So I've been fortunate enough to, 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 to measure the entire generation of millennials, their political activity, and now we're halfway into Gen Z. Okay. So let's talk about Gen Z a little bit, and then we can talk about the current news. So I'm Gen X. But I want to ask you, my generation, just give us the landscape. My generation sucks, right? Our generation sucks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Our generation sucks. We just don't have like a central identity. You know, it's smaller. We don't have a central identity. And the reason I say it sucks today, Molly, is because when I ask Gen Xers what they think of essentially their kids, you know, Gen Z would essentially be the kids of Gen X. They've got like terrible views of them. I've asked this question a bunch of times in a number of different surveys, whether it's a feeling thermometer or a basic fave, unfave, and a strong majority of Gen X has negative views towards Gen Z. That's why I say they suck. Yeah, that's why we suck. Let's talk about what you're seeing. I think what we're seeing is a political enlightenment of a new generation. What I argue in my book, what I argue after looking at 45 youth surveys over the last couple of decades, is that two things. One is no generation, I think, since the greatest generation, has dealt with more trauma, more chaos, more quickly before neuroscience tells us that the human brain is mature around the age of 25, then that's just ge- this generation, Gen Z. They don't have a living memory of, of 9-11, which also means they don't remember September 12th or September 13th, 
arguably the last time our country was truly united at a common cost. Right. And even then it wasn't that united. But yes, continue. Right. But despite that and despite the impact they've seen from the financial crisis, from obviously school shootings, school shooting drills, opioids, climate change, systemic racism, COVID, et cetera, despite all of that, rather than fleeing, rather than like running away, losing complete trust in institutions, which they have, they've also decided to stand up and to fight. And the way in which I measure that isn't just from social media and organizers and protesters, but it's basically looking at the election results for the last three, three and a half election cycles, 2018, 2020, 2022, this generation has voted at numbers we have not seen in at least 50 years. When we were their age, Molly, real quick, when we were their age, we voted at half the level as our children in a midterm election, at half the level. Very interesting. Tell me why. They see an urgency. It's related, frankly, to this whiplash that they came of age under between no drama Obama and President Trump, when immediately they saw the the ramifications, the tangible differences that politics and political engagement can make. They saw that and they began to kind of pay closer attention. And of course, they were, I think, empowered by like-minded individuals that they they could connect with, the students of Parkland who did an incredible job, not just protesting, but registering voters and spreading that message from coast to coast in every community where they touched. And that really kind of started and I think kind of lit a flame from 2018 on that voting is just part of who they are. It's part of what they do. Unlike other generations, voting is an important part of the what we might call their civic toolbox. They're going to use every single tool that they can to create the America that they know we can be. This younger generation has the Republicans pretty worried. Is that right? They should be worried. Whether or not they're worried enough to actually stick a step back and to listen and to internalize what they're hearing, that's another conversation because I'm not sure they're worried enough to actually change course. Explain to me what they don't like about this administration and Republican politics in general. Especially over the last couple of weeks between Wisconsin and Tennessee, it seems to me from from Kellyanne Conway to Scott Walker, Mm -hmm. right? They're talking about, we have a messaging problem with Gen Z. We need to stop indoctrinating them. We need to turn them around. These are all quotes. Kind of my response is, and I've briefed, I've briefed the Trump White House and we briefed several candidates Republicans run for president for years and years. And what this version of the Republican Party doesn't understand is that it's not a messaging problem they have. It's a values problem. And and unless they listen to those shared experiences of Gen Z, if they look at our polling or any other public polling available and they see the deep concern they have about losing their basic rights and freedoms as Americans, whether that's a woman's right to her uh, reproductive choice, whether that's the right to breathe clean air and, and drink clean water, or right to be free of gun violence when you enter a classroom or other public space. These are basic fundamental rights. They're at the highest level of concern for Gen Z, regardless if you're male, female, white, black, Hispanic, Asian American, Democrat, or even Republican. 
So what percentage of Gen Z is pro-choice? It's a difficult number sometimes to kind of pinpoint, Molly, you know, based upon all the different topics under debate today. But I'd say a solid two-thirds wow. to close to you know 80% when you're talking about, for example, access to medical abortion pills. That's a, that's, you know, that's a, that's a more nuanced view of that, but a solid two-thirds. It seems like medical abortion pills are a loser for Republicans. There is a one state in America, Molly, where there is net support for banning that. Not one state in the union where there's net support for banning that. So remember, so we have two cases right now. This could possibly go up to the Supreme Court. I mean, they still might decide not to. If they're smart, they'll decide not to hear it. But if they do decide to hear it, you could see a world where they decide to ban medical abortion pills. Is there anything not on the table with this court? I mean, at this point, yeah, that would be my thinking. So if that happened... What would that look like in this, you know, this would then be the second row election? Yes. And and there are, there are two places, I think, where President Biden has uh, several options. There's always places to grow. OK. Right. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for him to grow among in the suburbs. I think there's a lot of opportunities to grow among women, specifically white women. I believe he lost the, the white female vote in 2020. So there were just a couple of examples, I think, of, of significant change that we could see in the electorate if the Republicans continue to be on this path. Another little footnote to that is when we talk about the youth vote and the Gen Z and, um, and the millennial vote, there are only two states with more than three uh, electoral votes with a Democrat where Biden did not win the youth vote, only two states, one of which was Tennessee. Right. So let's keep an eye on that. Let's talk about Tennessee for a minute, because this is kind of an incredible situation in Tennessee. You had a sort of groundswell of young voters, right? Some of whom were already in the legislature, including the two Justins. What do you think you'll see out of Tennessee now? The biggest barrier, Molly, to young people participating in politics is can they see the difference that engagement makes? So more people generally volunteer in service than vote. And is there a better example? Wait, explain that. More people volunteer than vote? That's crazy. In an in a off-year election, when less than half, less than half of young people vote, you'll have more young people volunteer in a significant way through some form of community service, whether they're in high school, college, or working within their religious community or helping neighbors. Yeah. So that, that's why I never bought the idea of like apathy. It was the sudden, uh, not a connection or seeing the tangible difference that politics can make. So if you, if you take that framework and you apply that to Tennessee, you can clearly see the difference that those two incredible young leaders have shown all of us, right? They have really kind of put the issue, the continued issue of, of gun violence, of school shootings, and kind of the lack of empathy, perhaps, right, of, of the opposition party into full force and to show that the power of organizing and community can change outcomes as they were both reappointed uh, the last week. So, I mean, do you think there'll be a groundswell of voting in Tennessee? I don't think there's any sort of question that you know, this is like a law of physics. I think was it the third law of physics, I think. I'm not, I'm not a physicist. I'm not really even that good at science, yeah. but I think it's like the third <laughs> law, right? Every action has a reaction. And in this case, the reaction is going to be stronger than the initial reaction, and it's going to be more powerful. And I, I think it just gives young people across that state much more reason 
to turn out. And I'm sure it's captured the attention of funders and other folks Man. who support younger people. And I, I look at the college, I looked at the uh, the results from Knoxville, you know, the college town where Republicans won quite handily in 2020. I'm not sure that's going to be the case in 2024. So again, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, these, the electoral votes will probably still go to a Republican. Yeah. In Tennessee, most likely this cycle. Yeah. But A, things will change. And also maybe they'll pick up a congressional seat and right. I mean that- State legislature? State legislature. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, speaking of, uh, it's never too soon to start panicking about this coming election. (laughs) I wanted to ask you, Republicans have the House by five seats. How many seats in New York did uh, did uh, Congress talk to me about that Republican New York delegation, many of whom won in Biden districts? I think that the youth vote now that they've turned out in three elections in a row, like I said, at record setting levels, this is changing the way in which the national parties think about strategy. And the thing about young voters is that they uh, there's always more of them, despite the fact that they've had these record turnouts. You know, we're still on average 50% among college students at 60%. So what I'm saying is that now that Democrats understand this, I think that and now that there's a, a, a playbook from Wisconsin, from the Wisconsin Supreme Court election just a few weeks ago, I believe that the Democratic Party will be investing on the ground to move young voters in these very close contests, like in New York, like in Colorado, and some of these other places, and potentially going to flip them by maximizing that cohort. I can't talk to you about every single race, but I think that's going to be a new tool in the Democrat toolbox. So I want you to say more about the playbook from Wisconsin, because that's explained to us what Democrats did in Wisconsin, because remember, it's a split state and Judge Janet won by 11 points. So if that isn't something to learn from, I don't know what is. So two other sets of numbers, right, that capture my attention, one of which is the turnout on college campuses, turnout at the University of Wisconsin system was between 80 and 99 percent of the turnout in the last midterm election. Okay, when you had the governor and the Senate race, that's number one. And this is an off year, like off year, off year election. A hundred percent. Yes. That's part one. And part two, the folks who turned out, the worst precinct was 78% for the progressive candidate. The worst precinct. Right. In some cases, there were 80, 85, 90% supporting the Democratic back candidate. So those are the results. How they got there is they did it with a relatively small team of 12 or 13 staff. I am so proud that one of my former students, Teddy Landis, was one of the key organizers of this movement. And what he did was he had 12 or 13 staff. He had a hundred paid fellows, essentially interns, tenants on student on students on campuses. They paid them, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars a week. They had the right vibe on campus in terms of how important this election was. But before they turned out people, they actually began to educate them first. So the three key components to moving young people to turn out, one, educate them. They had nonpartisan voter guides available on every college campus, hard copies as well as through the internet QR codes one. The second thing is they talk to them about the importance of this election and the difference that their participation can make, second. And then the third thing is they they able able to tear down some of those logistical barriers around registration and turning on, on election day. They had digital ads, but that was a relatively small component, I think, to just the, the, the real organizing 
and the joy that uh, these young young people had in organizing their peers. They knocked on every college dormitory minimum of two times. Wow. So. I mean, is that a playbook that Democrats could use in 24? Without question. I think, so there's two parts of that playbook, right? One is the framework I talked about, right? Education, empowering, and then lowering the barriers to participation. Right. Those three components are going to be critical. But just the idea of empowering other students to take this into their own hands, right? Provide a framework, but give them the flexibility, right? To, on this case, like students were running around in judges' costumes, right? They had hundreds of gavels on the hill at one of the universities there. Whatever they could do to create a spectacle, right? That would pierce through the traditional bubbles of people who care about politics to make it kind of, you know, a part of kind of who they are. And of course, you know, it wasn't just young people. Mike Tate, the former chair of the Wisconsin party, helped oversee and helped collaborate you know, with the young people who who are still so new into the process that they obviously could use some hands of more experienced folks. That's a, certainly kind of a playbook because, listen, it's almost like in politics, Molly, we talk about a blind poll. Right. You know, because of the way the Republicans are treating this generation, you know, seven out of 10 young people, if you just pull them out of a dorm or pull them out of a high school class or a community college class are going to be with a Democrat. Yeah, because their choice is nothing or, I mean, if the Republicans offer voters nothing, I mean, Donald Trump's gotten a raw deal is not something people vote on, especially if they're young, right? I mean, so I wanted to ask you, not that I think Donald Trump has gotten a raw deal because I do not. So I just wanted to ask you, now you are like into this 2024 cycle, you are involved in the Biden White House, so you see a lot of stuff and you have Biden's ear. What do you think Biden needs to do? I mean, his his numbers, again, I don't believe any of these numbers, so whatever. But what can he do? I mean, the, my sense is that really the issue is just to get his people out there, right? Like you're not going to change the Newsmax people are not going to be voting for him. I mean, but first of all, let's, let's take one small step back. And I would challenge anyone to name a more consequential president in delivering for young people in several decades, right. right? In terms of following up on what he promised during the campaign. That's part one. From fighting for student loan relief to climate to guns, et cetera, et cetera, he has done what he said he would do want. That doesn't mean that every young person is following the news as closely as you and I right. are and, and appreciate that, right? So one thing I think that he and, and the administration could not do enough of is continue to talk about all the wins from having our first African-American female in the Supreme Court through all the other accomplishments and say, this is because of you. This is right. because of the participation in those swing states and in every other state across the country. He's not president of the United States without young people. They were a core part of that of that coalition. So he can never do enough of that. And and to celebrate those victories and let them know that they were an important part of that. I think they have done a pretty incredible job of that during the campaign season of uh, during the last midterm cycle. But I think that you can never do enough of that, especially during this time, because it's all about building trust and building kind of a relationship with this generation. So what about stuff like a lot of younger people feel that really, you know, they've been sort of dragged into debt that they cannot repay and that is following them everywhere? I mean, what else can Biden do for these young people to know that he's looking out for them? Obviously, continuing to fight on the on the student debt—that's obviously not in his hands at the at the moment. 
but it's about understanding the fact that half of them, half of 18 to 29-year-olds, Molly, tell us uh, and tell medical researchers that several days, the last couple of weeks, they've felt hopelessness, depression, loneliness. 25% say it's so bad that they have thought about self-harm, 5% every single day. So it starts with a recognition from President Biden all the way down that this generation has incredible kind of anxiety about their future. Yeah. And, and we can't solve everything, but here are some things that government could do to lessen the burden just a little bit, help them feel safer in school, right? Help them access, if not college, community college, with a chance to learn your practice and, and to buy a home. So there are a variety of ways, I, I think, but in that context, understanding the real pain that so many members of this generation have, being empathetic to that and using that to find big things that government can do to, again, just take a little bit of that load off their, off their backs every day. Thank you so much, John. You are the best. Love it. Thanks so much, Molly. Joan Biskubic is a CNN senior Supreme Court analyst and author of Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right. Welcome to Fast Politics, Joan. Thank you. I am so happy to be here, Molly. We're delighted to have you. So, I want to talk to you. You're a Supreme Court analyst. The book is called Nine Black Robes. I first want to ask you, how different is the Supreme Court right now than any Supreme Court in history, or is it not? That's a great question, and it is very different. I started covering the Supreme Court late 80s, early 90s, first full-time when I was at the Washington Post and then moving on, and I always would write about the conservative majority. But when I look back and consider who I was labeling the conservatives for that majority, they would definitely be liberals today. We're talking about Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, people who then evolved into centrist justices and now whose legacy are essentially being erased. Yeah. The court is so different because the appointees since 2005, essentially, with Chief Justice John Roberts and then into 2006 with Samuel Alito, moved the court further to the right. And then, of course, the three appointees of President Donald Trump really propelled the bench into a whole nother territory, which is how I think we got the Dobbs ruling in June, rolling back nearly 50 years of precedent. Yeah. So let's talk about I sort of want to start with Dobbs, even though you have some really interesting stuff from your book. But I want to first talk about Dobbs because it's such a seismic shift. I mean, I want our listeners to sort of get like how you think this Dobbs decision came about a little bit, if that makes sense. Like, obviously, there were conservatives in the court who had always wanted this, but how they were able to sort of get it through. Sure. The Dobbs decision is so intertwined with the death of Justice Ginsburg. That was the culminating moment that got us to this point when Justice Ginsburg died and Donald Trump was able to speed through the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. But things had been building before then. I do want to remind our audience that there have been plenty of justices through the years, Republican appointees and Democratic appointees, too, who might not have ever voted for Roe, might have thought that Roe was wrongly decided, but who left it in place because they believed in precedent. So year after year, decade after decade, 
despite lots of misgivings about Roe on the part of, for example, Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, they still voted to uphold it. So you basically had a 1973 decision that justices adhered to, even though they had misgivings. Starting then when you take the 2000s, the early 2000s, and the appointment of Chief Justice John Roberts and Samuel Alito, you saw much more scrutiny of reproductive rights. And then what happened when Justice Ginsburg died, it was right in the same month that Mississippi had come up to the Supreme Court appealing earlier rejection of its 15-week ban on abortion. And never before had the court in this modern era decided to take up an appeal of an abortion ban. But that timing was so perfect for Mississippi because it suddenly gave a new audience for Mississippi. So when the justices decided to take that case, once Amy Coney Barrett was on the court, they did so with some reluctance. At first, they had waited to consider the petition from Mississippi for its 15-week ban. But then when they even agreed to take it, Molly, they said that they were only going to consider one question. And the question was whether the 15-week limit on abortions would conflict with Roe and the whole idea that government could not interfere with the abortion choice before the moment of viability, which is now put at roughly 23 weeks. So that was the one question they were going to take it on. And we all sort of understood that to still be a momentous case, an important case, because viability had been the firewall for nearly five decades. But then given the new justices we had, this court was ready to go further and decided to not just address the question presented, which was focused on this Mississippi law, but to go further and say for the first time that Roe cannot stand, Roe is gone. So it was in some ways very well timed on the part of Mississippi and also these other states. There was a prelude to the Mississippi case in Texas's SB8 case, you know, where which had essentially banned abortion at roughly six weeks. So these things all intertwined right at this crucial moment that was just in the aftermath of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about this quite interesting story that comes from your book about a secret deal between Justice John Roberts and Anthony Kennedy on gay rights. Roberts and Kennedy were these sort of old school conservative justices, ones who went to the court not with the goal of reshaping it, but really, I think largely, and again, I'm no expert, you are, with the goal of kind of finding consensus building. I mean, do you think that's true? And talk to me a little bit about what happened with this deal. Sure. And I think you rightly are characterizing how people have thought of Justice Kennedy mainly and the chief to an extent in terms of their institutional interests and moving incrementally. Right. You know, Ronald Reagan put Anthony Kennedy on the bench when he couldn't get Robert Bork through. And Kennedy was quite conservative consistently in the beginning, but obviously changed through the years. And he was the one who gave us the 2015 landmark ruling in Obergefell versus Hodges, which declared same-sex marriage a fundamental right. So that's kind of where you start with this chronology I lay out for this deal on gay rights. 
And the chief is he obviously is to the right of Anthony Kennedy, but he also is a bit of a incrementalist who didn't want things to be pushed too far. So this tale that I spin in my new book begins with Chief Justice Roberts dissenting so angrily to Obergefell. He takes the unprecedented for him step of reading his dissent from the bench. He has never done it in any other case for his 18 years on the court. And he says, just who do we think we are saying that it should be up to the legislatures across the country on whether same-sex marriage should be allowed? So he's very angry in 2015, but he still has to think about this institution that he is overseeing. And there are these two gay rights cases that come up in 2017. They're the first major battles since Obergefell. And he works with Kennedy to sort of move more incrementally, get a little bit more of what he wants, because one of them involves religious interests. But he also offers a concession to Kennedy. One involved a case of two lesbian women who had wanted to have both names on a birth certificate for their baby, but Arkansas had prevented that. And that was a case that Justice Kennedy and the liberal members of the bench had wanted to just handle in summary fashion because they thought that law is wrong and it conflicts with Obergefell. And they needed a sixth vote. There's a private rule at the court that normally you need five votes, Molly, as I'm sure you know, but you need a sixth if you're going to do a summary reversal. So the chief was willing to offer his sixth vote to summarily reverse this ruling to women who wanted both names on the baby's birth certificate and to cast that vote without any record of it. Because when you do a summary reversal, they don't have to say the vote. But at the same time, he wanted something from Kennedy. He wanted Kennedy to agree and to be inclined toward a Colorado baker whose case now you're very familiar with. But back in late 2016, early 2017, had just arrived at the court. And Justice Kennedy really did not want to take up a case that involved a baker who had refused to make a cake for a marriage celebration for two men who had married, wanted him to bake a cake, and he had refused. And the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had sanctioned this baker. Jack Phillips is his name. But the chief really felt like they should start looking at those kinds of cases because he was concerned, as he even wrote in his dissent in Obergefell, about religious interests people who are religious who do not want to acknowledge same-sex marriages and somehow could be punished for their resistance. And so, as you noted in the book, there's this tale of how Roberts feels like it's in his interest to work with Kennedy for a compromise in these two cases. And I use it as an example of how this is the chief using his soft power of persuasion to get something he wants in the wake of Obergefell. And I think it also shows how the justices' positions on gay rights evolve and are always fraught. These cases are always fraught. And right now we have one pending that essentially picks up the chapter from the Masterpiece Cake Shop. And it now involves, as you probably have been following, a woman who designs websites who doesn't want to have to design a wedding website for a same-sex couple. Yeah. Do you feel like a lot of these conservative think tanks and liberal think tanks do this, but I feel like conservatives do it more, have really been so focused on bringing up these cases in front of the Supreme Court that it's kind of perverted the way that the Supreme Court functions now? Oh, they are definitely being delivered cases. I mean, just think of what we have percolating in Texas right now yeah. on the medication abortion. There are activists 
who are bound and determined to get to this court. And right now, there are no liberals who want to get to this court. So let's just say they are doing everything to make cases stay away from this court. Yeah. So they've got their own agenda of saying, do not go to the Supreme Court. Let's go to state court for things as much as we can. They don't want to do that. Meanwhile, folks on the right are saying, we want to get to this court. This court has a big welcome mat sign out for us. In fact, that's how I gave kind of a long tale about Mississippi's great timing. But when Mississippi first came up to the court with its ban on abortions at 15 weeks, it was not asking for reversal of Roe because Ruth Bader Ginsburg was alive and Amy Coney Barrett was not yet on. But once there was that switch, once Justice Barrett had succeeded Justice Ginsburg, they changed their legal arguments and they said, we want everything now. And they got it. And that's why you see these other like-minded advocates coming to the Supreme Court with things that they had never had an audience for before. I want to keep going with this for a minute. Does it feel like they've slowed down at all? Like after overturning Roe, taking it right away from women that they'd had for 50 years, do you think that they've slowed down and been like, oh, it's too much? Or do you think they're going to keep going, remaking the country? No, I don't think they've slowed down. I'll give one small caveat to that having to do with some external factors, but I will just read you what you probably saw at the beginning of the book, which is a line from the dissent in Dobbs that I think does capture the attitude of the court. No one should be confident that this majority has done with its work. Mm. Just think what they've taken since then. We have the Harvard and University of North Carolina affirmative action cases. We have the North Carolina independent state legislature theory. Case. I thought that wasn't going to come up. Let me just tell you, it was it's up there. It was actually put to oral arguments. But there's a way that it might get derailed because a new North Carolina Supreme Court is reconsidering that issue. So there might be an off ramp for the justices on that. But they haven't obviously shied from racial affirmative action. And I would think that this court would want to go further on that. And then just what I mentioned about the website designer case, where we have this new one that's kind of picked up from the Masterpiece Cake Shop dispute. I think this is a court that would like to see the wall of separation between church and state dissolve more, that they feel like religious conservatives have been facing more and more discrimination. Justice Alito talks about that all the time on the court and off. Alito has some real brain worms. Tell me what you're watching this session in the Supreme Court. I really need more information about Justice Barrett. She doesn't write on a lot of cases. She hasn't been writing concurrences that would give us more of an insight into where she's at. I'm just interested in if maybe she'll break off more on death penalty cases, as she has done a little bit. I just want to see how strongly she's going to be with her fellow Trump appointees. So far, she has been, but she's still relatively new. So I'm paying attention to her as a justice, trying to see where she might be independent from the others. Ellie Mistel came on this podcast and he said that during oral arguments, she seems very smart, even though she votes with the conservative bloc 100 percent of the time, that he wonders if perhaps she is a person who may ultimately be changed by the court. That's interesting that he would say that. I mean, I do feel that she's someone who will bear watching and that she might be different. Now, when Brett Kavanaugh came on, there was some idea that maybe he would join forces with the chief a little bit more than he has. And he's just moved further to the right, I think. 
The other thing I'm watching is what happens among those three liberals. They have such a weak hand right now. The most they can hope for is the chief to move over a little bit and to work along the margins of cases with one or two other justices. But they're very interesting in that Justice Sotomayor is now the senior among them. I'll be watching for how she assigns dissents, what she keeps for herself, what she passes on, because that's some decent power there. And Elena Kagan, who had worked very closely with Stephen Breyer, and she had worked with the chief a little bit, she doesn't quite have an ally right now. And I have a feeling that she will be a little bit louder on the left. She had worked to broker compromises, but she doesn't have the people to compromise with anymore with the way it's changed. So I'll be watching her too. And of course, our newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, has been very active at oral arguments, but I'm eager to see more of her writing and to see how she will distinguish herself. Yeah, it's such a tough and strange Supreme Court. And you don't see anything on the horizon that makes you think there's any way in which the court gets expanded or anything like that happens. I just don't, Molly. I'll tell you why. I think that people have legitimate concerns about this court. It's not going to change for a very long time, given the ages of the conservative justices. We're looking at a court that will be with us for like 50 more years. But when you think of even President Biden has said he doesn't want term limits or court expansion. And I think so many Democrats and liberals who would criticize the court nonetheless have a real institutionalist bent and would resist that. And also there's a very strong argument that to have any kind of term limits, you would have to amend the Constitution. Uh, Thank you so much. I hope you will come back. Thank you, Molly. It was fun being here. And please invite me back. I would have fun. And now your moment of fuckery. And its historic consequences, Jesse Cannon. Molly Jong fast. So Texas Republican Representative Brian Slatton, who is our age or really my age, since you're a denial that we're the, the same age, who's married and a former youth minister. Well, turns out he was sleeping with a 21 year old intern allegedly. Uh, and he's one of those guys who was always talking about groomers. I'm telling you, every accusation is a confession. <laughs> every accusation is a confession. The, the, the projection that's happening these days of this groomer thing is re- really, really something. And one would hope that this would maybe be what silences them. But uh, no, we have no hope of that, right? No hope. Not even a little. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. 
chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget Beach Finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.